0: The first reading is Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Saba will bring him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence For precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let corn abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvellous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. The
1: second reading comes from Luke chapter 10, from verse 25. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. When he put the man on his own donkey, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper." Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word.
2: give me up my welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller, lovely to see you as ever. Let's pray as we begin this together. I Father, your word has been read, but it'll do us little good unless your spirit is at work uh, taking that word and applying it to our minds and our hearts. So please, uh, would you take these words that you've written long ago, take these words that you speak yet today, apply them to our hearts so we would live rightly, understand what it means to live justly with you, the Lord Jesus, as King. And We pray it for your glory's sake. Amen. Uh, if you join us tonight, then, uh, this is the uh, the third of three, really. We've been thinking about this title of uh, Pursuing Justice, and particularly this slightly elusive term of social justice. And it's a slightly unusual thing uh, to be taking a topic such as this. Uh, next week, we'll start the Book of Colossians and work our way through it for a whole number of weeks. Uh, and in one sense, that's a much... Safer, that's a bit dull, isn't it? Who wants to be safe? But um, a much more secure way of, uh, of working through the scriptures. Because when you work through a book of the Bible, God sets the agenda. And you work through it verse by verse by verse. And in one sense, that's much healthier. God uh, sets the agenda, and uh, we have to work through whatever we want, uh, whatever he tells us to. So that's a, a safer way. Where, by contrast, what we've been doing over the last few weeks, a sort of topical sermon series... There is the danger, of course, that I could just ride my hobby horses, uh, the Bible is a big book, I can pluck verses out of context and make them say whatever I choose to do so. Uh, let me assure you, that has not been my intention, but there is that possibility. Um, so why do something topically? Well, sometimes there are issues scattered throughout the Bible that, I don't know, sometimes they just they don't seem to come up that often in a course of a sermon series, that's just sometimes it's useful to sort of pull them out and say, look, this is a big issue, but we don't seem to have talked about it very much recently over the last year, two years or so. So to do something deliberately thematic has has that advantage to it. But so uh, this is the third of three then on pursuing justice. Week one was uh, we looked at really God's heart for justice; He cares, He cares for the marginalised in society. Week two, yeah, uh, last week, um, just took a couple of issues: evangelism and. Social justice, and there's clearly a priority in the scriptures for evangelism because that lasts for eternity rather than temporary. Uh, this week, then, uh, we come to consider somewhat about priorities in this area. And uh, I slightly promised that over the three sermons there'd be perfect balance. La la uh, We'll see how we get on, but there is a chance for questions, so uh, we can probably address that uh, a little later on. Um, uh, They're clear principles we're going to look at tonight, and you'll see there's a pretty full, unusually sort of descriptive or leading outline. We're going to work our way through this. Um, And I hope there's some clear principles here we'll work through. The problem is, even when you've got these principles in place, life is complicated. And so actually you can have clear biblical principles, and yet working them out, as we'll see, is still quite complicated. So, for example, uh, this week, you had a number of uh, Church of England bishops raging against the government's proposal to limit benefits to a cap of £26,000. And then the next day, you had Lord Carey, former archbishop, pulling rank, kind of, uh, of Canterbury, saying, the bishops are ridiculous. The government has got it right. You don't want to encourage welfare dependency. And in that debate, who is correct? It's complicated. I mean, you might have a strong view on that, but your view may be more informed by your political views than your biblical knowledge. Possibly. I can't comment. Um, But your laughter tells a little story of its own. Um, uh, So these things, they're complicated. They're not always straightforward to work it out. And even if you think that 26,000 is an appropriate level, what about this family that just doesn't quite work for... It's tricky, isn't it? Life is complicated. But let's uh, work through these principles and um, uh, then you can come back with uh, any questions you have. The first, then, this will be the briefest because we, uh, we looked at it last week, really. Well, let me tell you what they are. Um, how do we set priorities in this whole area of caring for the marginalized, pursuing justice socially? Care for eternity is the first Care for your family is the second. Care for your proximate neighbor is the third. We'll work through them. Hopefully that makes sense. First then care for eternity. Hopefully we established last time, Jesus' priority is for eternity. So uh, here's just a couple of obvious uh, quotes of him speaking. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What good is it if you take someone who is sick and make them well, but their soul is forfeit for eternity? It's not that the soul is more important than the body, or the spiritual is more important than the physical per se, but that eternity is more important than a temporary. It lasts longer. Duh, obviously. So Jesus establishes that. Or uh, Matthew ten twenty eight. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Look, blunt words of Jesus. But that's what drove his ministry. I care a lot more about what happens in eternity than what happens here and now, says Jesus. Even though I care profoundly for what happens here and now, I care more for eternity because it is forever. Forever to care for eternity. Um, we, need have, we need to have that priority clear. Now, uh, we spoke last week, some of the great, well, the, the great heroes uh, of evangelicalism who are well known for pursuing a sort of social policies and changing the world. Uh, we took Shaftesbury at the end of last week's sermon. Wilberforce is one of the other great ones who uh, everyone, without fail, kind of acknowledges as a good guy. I mean, ending the slave trade was a magnificent achievement. And he could rightly be proud of that, having dedicated his life to that. Apart from, he didn't dedicate his life to that. There are a whole range of issues he was committed to. But let me just give you one quote of his, after a debate. It was a debate in the House of Commons on the role of missionaries in India. And I don't even know how much you know at the time, but the East India Company, basically kind of the British government, uh Uh, wanted missionaries out. The East India Company wanted missionaries out of India because they were interfering in business and making money. Wilberforce stood up, debated, debated, debated this in the House of Commons, spoke for hours and won the day. And his comment at the end of that debate was, this cause of the recognition of our Christian obligation to preach to British India was the greatest I had lived for, not even accepting the emancipation of the slaves. Wow, Wilberforce, ending the slave trade, a magnificent achievement, glorious achievement. But the man himself can say, do you know what, it was more important that I protected the right of missionaries to preach in India, because that lasts for eternity, and transforms people's lives for eternity. He was clear, didn't stop him pursuing with all his passion the end of the slave trade of doing something enormously, profoundly valuable in this world. But he says, it's more important that I protect the right of missionaries because they can preach the gospel which saves people not just in this life but for eternity. He's very clear on that. This is the first thing uh, to have clear in our head. a first priority, care for eternity more than the temporary. And that will have an impact on how we use our time, money, etc. Second, and this breaks down a number of ways, care for your family would be the next priority. Care for your family. Let me break this down into three ways. First of all, your blood family. So Paul can write 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul, I'm not quite sure what you're saying. That's blunt, isn't it? That's pretty blunt. If you don't care for your immediate family... Just please don't call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, because I don't see how you can be, says Paul. Now, for many of us, this is relatively easy to work out. We do care for our families. We do see quite a lot of them. It's quite easy when you're parents to care for your children and look after them, nurture them. It's quite easy. It gets harder over time. Caring for your family does get a bit more complicated. Um... So many of, of, of my contemporaries would describe themselves as, odd word, but the sandwich generation, why would you want to be that? But the, the sandwich generation are those who have got parents who are getting elderly and need caring for, and children who are young and need caring for, both practically and financially. And so they get squeezed on both sides here would describe themselves quite in that category yet. But at that point, caring for your family becomes just a little bit trickier. When, in our case, two 93-year-old grandmas, and, you know, well, they've had to sell their houses and go into care. Well, you know, that, that's expensive. Um, and you, what do you do? Where do you house them? Do you say, okay, mom, you're going to come and live with me here, in my house, or, you know, I don't want that, that'd be inconvenient, you can live down the road, uh, but then you've plucked them from where they know their friends, and have known them for 50 years, and they're stuck in you, or do you let them stay where they are, and then you spend hours on the motorway at every crisis that occurs, it's, oh, then it's a bit more complicated, caring for your immediate family, can be a little more complicated doing that, or I, I don't know about your family at all, but it's certainly in, In my wider family, it is a little complicated. What do you do with the sister who's an alcoholic? Not mine immediately, but in our family, the sister who's an alcoholic. And you go and visit her, and the table is covered with red bills, and she's about to have her gas cut off. And you offer to pay the bill, but you can't give her the cash because she'll be straight down the off-license to drink. What do you do? How do you help? Do you give her the money? It's a bit more complicated, isn't it? Or the cousin who is addicted to gambling? And age 35 is, is compulsive and is in huge debt and rings up and says, please give me money or I'm going to get beaten up badly. Do you give him money? Or will you just go down the bookmakers? It's very easy, very straightforward. Care for your family. You know, working it out, it's a bit more complicated, isn't it? Sorry. It's not straightforward. Care for your family, your immediate family. Next uh, element of that would be care for your Local church family is Acts chapter 4, the early church, uh, just a few days after um, Jesus has uh, risen, and sorry, ascended to heaven. And it's described like this, the early church, there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Okay, that's very clear. It's not communism. There's no compulsory redistribution here, but a recognition by the wealthier that the Lord has blessed them, given them great resources. And as they are, not compelled, but as they feel appropriate, they're to share. God has given them an opportunity to be generous with their wealth, to share with those in need. Care for your local church family. Now the thing is, I don't know about I'm really privileged because I kind of know about how this goes on more than most. I see it, I hear of it more than most. So I know well that in this church there are many who have provided interest-free loans to get people out of trouble. There are some who have given thousands of pounds to help people out who are in real trouble. There are people who have given their cars just out of kindness. There are people who have hired staff into their companies that they don't really need just to keep people ticking over when they're out of work, just for morale, as much as for salary. Really generous. That's complicated. It's complicated. Okay, one sense, okay, just give to people. But how do you, needy, how needy? What if someone uh, you know, someone arrives at church, they're only here a month, and they say, actually, I, I'm, I'm going to be the next great British painter. I mean, David Hockney, yes, he's the greatest at the moment, but he'll die soon, and the next will be me. Um, and I'll dominate. Uh, and I'll have uh, great exhibitions uh, just down the road. Um, so actually, what I need to do all my time is paint, full time. So I haven't got time to earn any money, I just need to paint. And um, so you need to help me, I'm in need. And so they go up to, I don't know, A father in the morning congregation, he's got three kids, he works 70 hours a week, and they say to this father, you need to sell your three-bedroom house and move all five of your family into a small two-bedroom flat and give me the money because I'm in need. Well, no. No. You're not that in need. Go get a job would be the response to that, I think. Or, okay, let's put a time limit on how long that can last. We might be prepared to help you. We're under no compulsion. And we might be prepared to help you for a while. So what? Complicated, not always straightforward uh, to get that right. The local church family, and yet what we meant to, what we need to be clear on as a church is the church is meant to be a different society, a countercultural society. We had Psalm seventy-two read, uh, and of course it's a most, the most marvellous promise of a king, a king who will come and bring justice of every kind. A number of lovely verses in there, but let me read you again, Psalm 72, verse 12. He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He'll take pity on the weak and the needy. He'll save the needy from death. He'll rescue them from oppression. Here is one who will bring justice. No, what's it talking about? Well, of course, biblically, Psalm 72 is talking about Jesus Christ. When he came in the past, he brought justice. He cared for the oppressed that he met. But he's gone now. When he comes in the future, he will bring perfect justice. No more oppression. No more poverty. Perfect. He did it back then. He will do it in the future. And here and now... The church is meant to be the place where this is seen. The church is meant to be the community where the weak and the needy can come and be helped. And if they're members, if they belong to the church, not be different. It's not meant to be weak and needy and oppressed within a church community. It's meant to be a different place to model what will happen when Jesus returns again. The church needs to be different. So care for your family. Blood family, local church family, distant church family as well. Can we squeeze that one on? don't know. Oh, there we go. Distant church family. So here's um, a little later on in the early church, Acts, Acts chapter 11. The disciples in Antioch, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. Now, Paul's with them, the Apostle Paul, and if you read any of Paul's letters, a recurrent uh, ambition of his ministry is that wealthy Christians give to impoverished regions, poorer Christians. Now, there's a theological reason for that. He wanted the wealthy Gentile Christians to give money to the poor Jewish Christians to bind together the early church. There's a theological reason for it. But also practically, he just wanted those who've got cash to give it to those who haven't in a time of need and famine. That's not within a congregation. That's from one region to another region. And uh, he organized, I mean, 2 Corinthians 8 is the the great place where you see him organizing that. Now, again, many here would be heavily involved in that sort of work. So a number here would support financially the Barnabas Fund for persecuted Christians uh, in overseas countries or the Bible Society, getting Bibles to people who otherwise would wait months before they're able even to get hold of one. But when there are so many needs, it's complicated, isn't it, again? You could easily read through a Christian newspaper and think, where do I start? Don't give money to Syria, to, to Iran, to, to a couple of Christians in Egypt, where do I start? And so naturally, for Paul, there were links. These were people that he knew. So You start off with people you know. So there's a relational element to it. So again, practical example. It was just about a year ago that the earthquake took place in uh, uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand. And wonderfully, uh, this church sent out—I mean, just uh, just short of twenty thousand pounds, just, em- just immediately just buy whatever is needed, just give people water, get them mobile phones, so they because the whole uh, otherwise everything's collapsed, no one's got uh, landlines anymore. Just help people out with what they need. It's a wonderful, spontaneous act of generosity on top of what you know, we're all involved in giving on a regular basis. Brilliant. Brilliant. And everyone says, that's just a good example of that, I think. There's a relational connection, link, with that church. They're a mission partner. We support them. Not all would have heard this. Let me read you just a little extract from um, uh, the letter that uh, was an email, actually, that uh, Costa, James de Costa, sent uh, after receiving that gift. Matt, you need to know that the church family at Christchurch Mayfair has been capital. It's absolutely brilliant. The support in prayer and extremely generous practical, practical provision has been first order. At times I've cried here with gratitude for everything people over there have done. You can be proud of them. It's a deep work of God in their lives. It's made us look forward to being with Christ and his people forever. Who would not want to be there in heaven if that is what his people are like here and now? even when they're sinful. It's very lovely, isn't it? I'm not saying well done, or kind of, but um, what I'm saying is that we don't want to beat ourselves up. And It's very easy when you're talking about this topic just to feel guilty all the time. A number of these things happen, sharing with Christians in different regions, and it's most obvious when you've got a relational link with people. So care for eternity. Care for your family, blood family, local church family, distant church family. Third, it's it a little more complicated. Care for your proximate neighbor. Care for your proximate neighbor. Galatians 6 verse 10. Paul writes this, Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, note again, there's a sense of priority, especially to the family of believers. So as we have opportunity and uh, financial resources and time and expertise, they'll go especially to people we know, people within the church, family. And yet that is still there, it's still there, isn't it? Do good to all. Do good to all. Now, I don't know about you, but this is when I, I just get overwhelmed. Do good to all, okay. Okay. At the end of my road at the moment, there's a billboard poster. Every 45 seconds, a child dies of malaria. Is that my fault? Have I got a responsibility for that? Yeah, I'm a minister, pastor. Probably twice a week I'll get mail through the post saying, please give to this starving child, this impoverished woman. All of them? There's a sense of reality here. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to the family. Now, what do you do with this? I've been helped enormously. Um, uh, One of the books I mentioned last week, the the Kevin DeYoung, Greg Gilbert book, is a good book. What is the mission of the church? And on this issue, I I find them particularly helpful. They talk about, we need to bear in mind, there's a principle in the Bible of moral proximity. What do they mean by that? It's just essentially, the closer you are to someone, the greater the obligation you have to help. And that seems to make sense biblically. It's not just a geographical proximity. I have more responsibility to my sister, who lives in Cardiff, than I do to someone I've never met, who lives in Marlebone. Because it's, it's a natural thing, isn't there? There's a moral proximity to them. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how it pans out in the Bible. Do turn back if you've dropped it to, uh, to Luke chapter 10. A very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. I think the principle here is you love the neighbors that you meet. Now this is by no means going to be a thorough exploration of this biblical text. Let me just draw out a couple of points. Here's a man, then, who meets Jesus, and he suddenly wants to be lazy. So we're told that in verse 29. Jesus has told him, love your neighbor, and the man says, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So here's a man, he's, well, love your neighbor. Well, that sounds complicated. I've got a few of them. Who, Who is that? Can we just narrow that down a little bit? And so, of course, Jesus tells the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I say, I'm not expanding this at all, but... Why is the Samaritan praised, essentially? It is because he has compassion on the man that he walked by. Whereas the Pharisee and the the Levite are condemned for ignoring the man that they walk past. So, let me try and be a little bit clearer on that. Note, the Samaritan then, he's not a member of brotherhood of the beaten up man. He isn't on a crusade to find every single man who's been beaten up in the whole of Israel. He doesn't set up a foundation, a discussion group for men who have got beaten up. Those might all be good things. What does he do? He walks past a bloke and helps him. See, there's an issue of proximity there. Similarly, the the, the Levite, the Pharisee, why are they condemned, why are they castigated? It's not because they've never set up a charity for people who've been mugged. It's because they walk past a bloke in trouble. Do you see the difference? There's a bloke there in front of them and they just walk on by. It's not that their charitable giving hasn't been high enough that year. There's an issue of proximity I've read a lot of, uh, in the recent weeks, a whole stack of books which uh, include the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And most of them say, so, question, who is my neighbor? Answer, everyone. I don't think that's true in the parable. And I think that's practically unworkable. Who is my neighbor? Everyone? The, the, the ch- every child dying of malaria is my neighbor and I have to go and sort out all of them? Really? Yowzers. I'm going to be busy. Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, the one you walk past is your neighbor. There's an issue of proximity going on here. So the single mum who is struggling to make ends meet next door to me is my neighbor in a sense that the single mum in Liberia is not because I live next door to the first. Okay? There's a principle. There's a, So you love the neighbors that you meet. Or just to push it a little bit further, you, you love the neighbors that you know. Just flick on a few pages to Luke chapter 16. Another parable Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus. Let me... Uh, At a stupid pace, just read it to you quickly. rich man Lazarus, Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell. Where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. So you can't cross. Why essentially is he castigated? The rich man, again, he's not hes not condemned just generally for a lack of charitable giving. He's not condemned because he has a few nice meals. He's condemned because Lazarus sits at his gate and he does nothing. There's a bloke sat next to him. He's fantastically wealthy and he does nothing for the bloke living on his doorstep. You see, there's an issue. He's close, Lazarus, and the rich man has the resources and he does nothing. So the the problem then with the rich man is he ignores Lazarus who sits, sits at his gate. Okay, he could have helped someone who was there right in front of him, but he doesn't. Now the reason these things are so helpful, or to to get clear this issue of um, but um, uh, this issue of moral proximity, why it matters is it it just prevents crippling guilt that the Bible doesn't want us to have. Otherwise every time you, you go next door to the pizza place Prezzo, and you have two for one pizza and it's pretty cheap really for relatively, but you sit there and think, I'm having a pizza and it's costing me five pounds, but how many children with malaria are dying because of this pizza? And you just, you're just crippled. You can't do anything. You're feeling a bit thirsty on the way home. Oh, I mustn't do that. You go to Sainsbury's. Oh no, it's little. I can't shop in Sainsbury's anymore. I have to, you're not meant to be crippled in that way. The Bible doesn't demand that we're ascetics, go without anything. But there's a principle of moral proximity. The person you walk past, the person who lives next door to you, they're your neighbor. They matter. And you need to care about them in a way you don't have to feel guilty about someone on the other side of the planet. Our obligation to St. saviors in Christchurch is different from our obligation to St. Stephen's in Birmingham. The obligation you have to a family that live in your street is different. Say a family in your street, their house burns down, and they've just got nothing. Your obligation to help them is different to a family who, whose house burns down in Sheffield, and you've never met them before. The one's is this common sense, isn't it? I just want to show you biblically that there is a principle here, moral proximity. It's not all the same. Not every person who loses their house in a fire globally is your responsibility to sort out. You'll be pleased to know. Proximity makes a difference. Three things. Three things then. Care for eternity. Care for your family. Care for your proximate neighbour. Let me try and conclude these three sermons. Three little things as we finish. That I'd love us to to take away. The first is this. Allocate your resources in line with these priorities. Eternity, family, proximity. Allocate your resources with that in mind. Which means that in terms of time and energy and money, invest, invest in the things that last for eternity most. Remember, you know, at the start of the month, Matthew 28, what is the mission given to the church? What does Jesus say to his disciples? It's go and make disciples. That is his priority for this world. So allocate our resources, angle towards the eternal, not the temporal. What does that mean? Do do you want a percentage? Look, don't ask me that. You need to work that out more. If it's helpful, I, I probably 90% of my giving goes towards eternal gospel work. 10% towards the Barnabas Fund and, uh, um, and St. Mungo's and street charities in, in South America. Does that matter? Does that help? I don't know. You've got to work it out for yourself. For my mind, that's a sensible proportion. But you might think that's wrong. Okay, fine. We can talk about that. But allocate towards the eternal more than the temporal. Your energy, your time. Second, since the the, the priority of the Bible is, be be a just person. That's a command upon all of us, I think. Be a just person. Some people will set up justice projects. Good for you. The world needs them. And uh, go back and look at all those verses we looked at two weeks ago. God cares for the marginalized, and so should we. But the priority for me, as I, you know, as I reflect all you know, this stuff I've been reading and thinking about over the last uh, six weeks or so, I realize the priority for me is, what am I doing about Joyce, who's my 90-something-year-old neighbor? Has she got enough food? Is she okay? That's my priority. That There's a biblical, I think, injunction upon me that I should care for her and make sure she's all right, because none of her relatives are still living. No one... I need to to be looking after Joyce or or be involved in that with others. That's much more of a priority biblically for me than whether I set up some campaign or new charity. Now, some people will do the latter, and it's marvellous. Some people will be William Wilberforce and do great things in this field. Brilliant. Brilliant. But all of us need to be just people. that will be the second. First, then allocate resources in terms of priorities particularly at home. second be a just person worry about that rather than particularly setting up new justice projects of the kind the third let's be a church where these things are real so we can have grand dreams but first and foremost we do need to model this amongst ourselves a care for one another a concern for one another that there be no needy persons among us It's complicated, sort of straightforward as saying that sentence. But let's make sure we're committed to that and living that out realistically. Let me give you one final principle or one final priority. It's the obvious one as we finish. just um, If you've got a Bible to instill in your hand, turn up to Mark chapter 10. Famous verse, obvious principle just to land on as we finish. Last priority we need to bear in mind. Mark 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Wherever we are, and wherever our thinking is on this issue, one thing we need to be very clear on. Before we do anything but Jesus Christ, we need him to do something for us. It's very striking. God himself comes down to this planet... And doesn't, first and foremost, demand anything from us, but says, I've come to serve you. I've come to serve you by dying in your place, by bearing wrath for you, by offering forgiveness if you trust in me. I've come to serve you. Now, when you've got that clear in your heads, says Jesus, oh, then serve me. Come to me as your saviour and follow me as your Lord. But don't think that by serving me you'll get into heaven. You need to be served by me, and then serve one another. Now that's just fundamental. That's how you begin the Christian life: being served by Jesus Christ. But of course, it is. You, you just need to know that to keep on going. To give ourselves, and of course, all this this call to care for other people—it's all—it's tiring, you know. It takes energy, it takes money. It's tiring. And the only way we'll keep on doing that is knowing that we're served by Jesus Christ and coming back to him and being refreshed in that. My wife's birthday this week. We should go out for dinner. And that doesn't happen very often, sadly. But um, she'll get very excited about going out for dinner. And we'll go out for a nice dinner for her birthday. And why particularly... I mean, I like going out for meals, but I don't get as excited as she does. Why does she get so excited? Because she cooks a lot of meals. For kids, for me, Not, lots of meals in a day for me, um, uh, but in a week. She cooks a lot, therefore to sit and have someone cook for her and wash up for her is a real treat, in a way it isn't quite the same for me. She loves being served, and actually being served every now and again, woo, it's exciting, and it refreshes, it refreshes in order to get on and serve me and the family and, and lots of people here and others. I want to say we just mentally need to remember Jesus Christ has served us in giving his life so that we can be with him for eternity, in giving his life so that we can know him even here and now. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And in one sense, that's the main priority to have clear in our head. If we understand that rightly, then hopefully, complicated as it is, everything else slowly drops into place as we seek to serve him, our family, our church family, people beyond that. But we do so joyfully, energized by knowing that he's served us first. Let me lead us in prayer together. Father, we, uh, we pray on that you give us help as we try to work out this topic and uh, uh, live it out in practice. Uh, We pray that um, uh, principles we've talked about this evening, as far as they're true, would uh, would shape us rightly. We pray that uh, we continue to discuss this as a church, to sharpen one another and and help one another what it looks like for me in my workplace and you in your workplace. Father, help us as we work these things out. But above all, give us hearts that are like yours, that care, that care for others, care for the others around us in church, that do care for the marginalized and, and do what we can as far as we have opportunity. And would we do that, knowing that Jesus Christ has served us in his death? And would we do that, in part longing to serve him in this world, to the praise of his glory? Amen.